overhead projector went out, and then I was reminded that the church somehow made it through 2,000 years of church history without a projector, and I was comforted in that. Well, next week is going to be a great privilege for us, our very own Brent Small, who some of you uh, know, and of course, uh, you've probably seen his wife here, uh, Kim, and their dear precious boys that that often accompany them. He will be bringing the word to us tomorrow, uh, next week on Sunday. He is a dear brother. He pastored for nine years in Virginia and uh, works at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So we are looking forward to his ministry to us next week. Well, if you'll recall our intro last week in response to new polling that was conducted among self-identified evangelicals, reported that well over half of those polled, 62%, felt that the Holy Spirit was merely a force or a power associated with God. And of course, we know that the Holy Spirit is not a what, but is a who. It is the person of the Holy Spirit working in perfect unity and unison with the Father and the Son for the accomplishment of His will. And of course, the biggest problem with this polling data, if true is that the majority of evangelicals would be worshiping a God who does not exist. The God of Scripture is a triune God. He's three in one. If we omit the person of the Holy Spirit and turn Him into a force or an electricity of some kind, we now have a God who does not exist. We have fashioned, intentionally or not, an idol. And idols cannot save. This is a sobering reflection for us. But this coin has two sides as well. Saints, none of us are going to have a perfect theology on this side of eternity. We are fallen. Our abilities to think and to reason are also fallen. In Genesis 3, it was not just our bodies that fell and shall die, but our mental capacities fell as well. This is called the noetic effects of the fall. We do not think as we should. We cannot process as we were, as we were created to process. And we need to know that. Because as we are striving to know God rightly, as we are desiring to grow in knowledge and love of God, Philippians 1.9, we are going to miss the mark. There are going to be things that when we get to heaven one day, we're going to say, ah, boy, I sure missed that one. So when we talk about these polls that have the majority of self-identified Christians completely omitting the person of the Holy Spirit, we need to be careful with this. Because a tendency for some might be to put a yoke upon themselves of worry and of doubt saying, oh no, you know, I'm going to get something wrong. I'm going to understand something wrong and then I'm not saved. And oh no, I want to encourage that saint. Lest we be as the Pharisees that we'll hear about this morning, heaping yokes and burdens on people. Yes, we are to work at growing in knowledge. We have said many times before that Scripture does not separate growing in love for God and growing in the knowledge of God. They are inextricably linked. But if someone professes to love Jesus and can tell you nothing accurate about Him, do they really love Him? Boy, I sure do love my wife. Well, wonderful. Tell me about her. Well, I don't know any specifics really, just that I love her. How much water does that hold? Do you really love her if you can tell me nothing about her? Now, am I going to get it right every time? My wife will tell you no. I will not get it right every time. But do I know who she is? Do I know her likes and her dislikes? Do I know what makes her tick? Do I know her, her sensitivities and her strengths? When you love someone, you know something about that person. To believe that the Holy Spirit is a force and not the third person of the Godhead is to not know Him. 
But here's a very important point I want us to grab hold of. It is not the lack of knowledge here that is causing concern necessarily. It's what that lack of knowledge says about the relationship. If a perfect knowledge that's complete and unassailable in all areas is the standard for salvation, then we're all sunk. But if I can't tell you that my wife has brown hair, we might have a problem with our relationship. We all have areas of knowledge that we fall short on. We always will. I will be a student of my wife until we die. But do we have a relationship in the meantime? Of course. And one of the ways that we show our spouse that we love them is to grow in the knowledge of them, to know them better so that we can love them better. If you are a newborn Christian in here, there are some, there are going to be things you do not know yet about the Lord, just like newlyweds will not know about their spouse. That takes time to grow. So don't let your heart be troubled by that. But do you know that your spouse has brown, brown hair? You know that they do not like bacon. Crazy, I know. And that they like to read in the morning. If you're married, you should know these things. If you don't, it's not the lack of knowledge itself that's concerning. It's what it says about the relationship. If you're newlyweds, there are some things you will not know yet. That will take time and learning, but be of good cheer. If you've been married for 20 years, the excuses don't hold much water. 20 years of darkening the church door every Sunday brings with it a certain accountability. So press in. Know your Savior more. Know the Holy Spirit more. This is one reason why our time spent in the Gospels is so very important. Here we see the heartbeat of our Savior in human flesh, interacting with His creation. We're learning who He is. He's the bridegroom. and We are the bride. So let us know Him. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we had quite a reunion, quite a reunion with the group that we've been missing for a few chapters. Back on the scene are the Pharisees. And we did a review last week as well of what exactly they were doing there. Having come down from Jerusalem, Mark tells us in verse one, doesn't he? They've come down from Jerusalem and Jesus had performed not one, not two, but all three messianic miracles. And this has put the Pharisees into overdrive at this point. They've gone through their observation stage of Jesus. They've reported back to Jerusalem that, yes, the findings are significant. And now they are back for that much more intrusive interrogation phase. They're watching everything that Jesus and the disciples are doing and saying. That's why they are here in our text today. That's the context of their conversation here in chapter 7. When the light is shining so brightly in your face, having performed every messianic miracle, having walked blameless with every requirement of the law met in witnessed accounts, you're now at a crossroads. These Pharisees are at a crossroads. You either fall down at His feet as Lord or you harden your heart even further and you try to take Him down. You either must praise Him or destroy Him. That's the epics that He has brought us to. If we haven't figured it out, the Pharisees are going to do the latter. 99% of all who are confronted with the truth of the gospel will do the latter. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Few find it. But many soils of the heart can yield this response to destroy the Lord of glory. And here today, this deadly crop has been cultivated in this soil of religiosity that our insides, Jesus said, that are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. Last week, the Pharisees witnessed the disciples breaking the tradition of the elders. Verse 5, 
Not Jesus or the disciples breaking the law. Jesus never broke the law. He came to fulfill the righteous demands of the law. Right? Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle by no means will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And praise God that it was. Because now the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands has been set aside and has been nailed to the cross. No, they were breaking no law, the disciples. They were breaking tradition. They were breaking the tradition of the elders. And I would have smiled and thanked them very much for the compliment at that point. Now, we read a few of these traditions from the Jerusalem Talmud itself. What they would have read from. Remember these from the Jerusalem Talmud. These are the traditions of the elders that they're being accused of breaking. Quote, the words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. It is a greater crime to transgress the words of the school of Rabbi Hillel than the words of Scripture. My son, attend to the words of the scribes more than the words of the law. Hey, Jesus, your disciples are breaking the traditions of the elders. Well, thank you very much. They've learned very well. That would have been my response. But Jesus' response to them is far more thunderous. It's far more damning. It's far more devastating. Jesus' response to the Pharisees' accusation today will be one more brick in the road on the way to Calvary. One more ounce of fuel in the hatred of the religious elite. These accusations made last week were not the words of free men at liberty, calling others to the liberty that they had found, but of slaves who had shackled themselves in self-righteousness, who desired others to be in the very bondage that they themselves worshipped. And aside from Jesus' interaction with Satan in the wilderness, it's hard to find a group that's more diametrically opposed to Jesus Christ than these men. With that, let's begin with part two of this explosive interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. Verses 6 through 13. Mark 7, 6 through 13. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men, leaving the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. And he was also saying to them, you are good at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever you might benefit from me is Corban. That is to say, given to God. You no longer leave him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down and you do many such things as that. Let's pray. Lord, as our text last week as well, this is a difficult mirror for us to look in. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would soften our hearts to receive this word. We ask, Lord, that we would look into this mirror and not turn away and forget what it was that we have seen, that we've been shown this morning. We ask that you attend to your word in this text in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, before we launch into Jesus' response to the Pharisees' accusation, saints, we need to put ourselves in the right seats to hear Jesus' rebuke. 
And how often throughout the Gospel of Mark have we had to fight the temptation to sit in judgment or in haughtiness over, say, the disciples, for example. Often, perhaps. We look at some of the things, right, that the disciples said and did, and we thought, boy, had that been me, I would have had more faith. Had that been me, had I, had I seen what the disciples saw, I would, have, I would have known who Jesus was. I wouldn't have been afraid. Well, it's tempting to cast stones. And it's no different today with the Pharisees. Lest we view this interaction today from up in the cheap seats, disconnected or aloof from the scene, we need to move down to the front row. We need to feel a little spit from the stage. Although the Pharisees were hard-hearted, although they were accusing the disciples of not following the tradition of the elders by washing their hands properly, and we can shake our heads at that. We can roll our eyes at the foolishness of the Pharisees. But the truth is, we all have our hand-washing rituals. How many of us have something in our life that we do thinking that it makes us more acceptable to God? I forgot to pray or read my Bible this morning. God's not going to bless me today. Anything in our life that we think puts us in a better light with God the Father that is earning something from Him, that is currying favor with Him, what we have is just another worthless hand-washing ritual. And why is it worthless? Because Paul tells us in the Ephesians that God has made us accepted in the Beloved. Saints, the problem with our hand-washing rituals is that we are declaring to ourselves, we're declaring to others, we're declaring to heaven itself that the cross was not sufficient. We're saying, thank you, Calvary. Thanks for the blood of Christ for that 99%. Now let me throw in my 1% to really get us over the finish line. What is that? Are we chipping in our 50 cents towards a truly incalculable debt? Is this some sort of infused righteousness that we're trying to obtain by whatever our ritual is? Our religious rituals tell us that Jesus only paid 99%. And we're going to come in and we're going to make up the difference. Someone who's saved out of a, a Catholic church or any works righteousness based religion will know exactly what we're talking about here. Let me get out my 30 chapters of the Mishnah and wash these copper pots properly. If you weren't here last week, you might not get that reference. It sounds foolish when we put it that way, doesn't it? And yet we all have our own little Mishnahs. We have our own hand-washing rituals. Yet the Pharisees could not. The Jews could not. We cannot please God through any religious ritual. You cannot please God on your own. Full stop. God is only pleased in one person. His Son, Jesus Christ. Our entire salvation is the byproduct of a love affair between the Father and the Son. You are a gift from the Father to the Son. And in we walk in the middle of a cosmic gift exchange from the Father to our Son with our hand washing. Washing our hands. You could no sooner leap over Mount Everest than contribute anything to our justification before God in Christ. And yet we wash our hands. We wash those copper pots, don't we? To believe that we can add to God's salvific affection for us through whatever it is we are doing is to not understand the nature and the foundation of our salvation. God loves you because He loves His Son. God could not love us apart from Christ. He could not even look on us apart from Christ. And He's given it all to Him. It's all His. Christians are a gift from the Father to the Son. And we like fools try to add to something that is so far beyond us we cannot even begin to fathom what it took 
to ransom fallen man to an infinitely holy God. It took Jesus. It took God's very Son, bled out on a cross. Nothing else would do. There was no other option for our salvation. There was no plan B, just this. And the cement for it was poured before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. It is the only, it is only the pride of a fallen man's heart that thinks he can get in between God and Jesus with our ritual hand washing, trying to please God and get some credit. Look at me, God. Look at my clean hands. No. No, do not look at me. Hide my face. Look at Jesus. To look on me without Christ, to catch a glimpse of me without Christ covering, God can only give me His wrath. God's attributes, who He is, His holiness, His justice, demands only His wrath apart from Christ. In fact, Scripture goes beyond merely getting safely on the other side of Jesus or, or putting Jesus between you and God. It tells us to hide ourselves in Jesus. To be in Christ. Five times in Scripture, it talks about Christ being in you. 164 times, it talks about you being in Christ. For you have died, Paul says to Colossians, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I don't want to be just on the other side of Jesus. I don't want to just be covered by Jesus. I want to hide myself in Jesus. Wrapped up, hidden away, nothing visible of my own that is not covered in Christ. If you want to wash those hands, you want to wash those copper pots, if you want your religious ritual, you're going to have to step outside of Christ to do it. You're driving uninsured, dear brother. You are not covered. That is vain worship for the Christian. It's vain worship. Those works will be burned up in the day of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3.15 There's no reward for such external rituals for the believer. And for the unbeliever, this vain worship is certain death. It is an eternal hell for those who are trusting in those clean pots, in those clean fingernails, washed, per washed perfectly in accordance with the Mishnah to earn points with the Lord. It's worthless to God. Not only is it worthless, but religious hypocrisy evokes the anger of Jesus like nothing else we see in Scripture. A broken and contrite spirit, he will not turn away. But you may only enter in by the narrow gate. You may only enter into the holy of holies hidden in Christ. Everything else is turned to ash and to dust. All who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. External and vain worship will be burned up when tested by the refiner's fire. It will not survive. Even if it's the right God. If it's done with the wrong heart. If it's external religiosity, the worship is in vain. Remember our guiding principle in dealing with the Pharisees. And indeed in dealing with ourselves. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. So with that, hopefully we've come down from the cheap seats. All of our balloons have been deflated. We aren't sitting loftily over the Pharisees anymore. At least I hope we're not. And we can see Jesus' rebuke that's coming with the right heart. Verse 6. Verse 6. And He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written. Stop. First thing we need to notice here. When it comes time for a rebuke, when it comes time for a correction, where does Jesus take us? Scripture. 
God has put his full weight and authority into his word. When Jesus needs to draw his sword, it is written, it is written, it is written. And this is our model in Lanesville 2021. It is written. We are to be a people of the book. Jesus takes us to Isaiah, a scroll that the Pharisees would pride themselves in knowing. Funny thing about that, Pharisees, Isaiah was talking about you. What does Jesus say? Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. Rightly here, meaning beautifully, finely, excellently, accurately. Isaiah nailed you. Jesus quotes Isaiah 29.13. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Well, envision, if you will, for me a mountain of rebuke. And we are climbing that mountain and we're just about near the top. And the next verse that we'll get to is going to be our crescendo, our summit. But not yet. This is building toward that. Jesus tells us the foundation of his rebuke here. They are hypocrites. They're hypocrites. Now, we all know what a hypocrite is, but we have a bit more modern understanding of the word than first century Capernaum. And remember, how many meanings can a text have? One. And if a first century Jew cannot sit in this chair this morning and have no idea what I'm talking about, that's not the meaning. So we need to know what hypocrite meant to them. Now, this is the only time that Mark will use this word in his gospel. So we do well to pay close attention. He's driving at something in particular. Now, to us, a hypocrite is someone who does one thing and says another, right? Pretty simple. They don't practice what they preach. And the Pharisees would also have understood this, but the visualization would be very different. You see, to the ancients, the word hypocrite meant stage actor. Stage actor. So what is Jesus likely seeing in his mind as he's using this word? What draws him to this word? Only four miles away from Nazareth, where, of course, Jesus grew up, stands the city of Sepphoris. This was the main city. This was the capital of Galilee and Perea. Today, Sephorus is nothing but ruins, but in Jesus' day, it was a, a bustling hub of over 30,000 people. It was, it was hemorrhaging with commercial, commercialism and trade. It was the royal residence of Herod Antipas. And guess what else it boasted? A magnificent 4,000 seat theater. Consider our word, hypocrite, stage and actor. Was Jesus culturally familiar with the theater? Being so close to Nazareth growing up, Sephorus was almost certainly familiar to Jesus. In fact, it was built exactly the time Jesus would have lived there. And what's more, being a tecton, right? Greek word, that's what Jesus was. Jesus and his father were what? Tectons, which means stone worker. It's very, very likely that Jesus himself would have worked on this theater as a young man. Sephorus was a city completely made of stone. Being such a massive project, they would have pulled tectons. They would have pulled stone workers from everywhere. Nazareth was only four miles away. It's almost certain that Jesus was involved in building this stage. The theater was a huge part of this city, and Jesus was right there for it. So to use an adage for an actor on a stage was a familiar term, and it makes a lot of sense, especially when we see what these actors did. Hypocrites. Greek or Roman stage actors, they would wear masks. And these masks had two sides to them. And the actors would use very exaggerated body movements so everyone could see what they were doing. They were pretentious. They would project their voices loudly so everyone could hear them through the mask. But ah, when it came time to switch the mask, 
to switch characters, they needed to be very careful. Spectators were not to see you switching your mask or turning your mask around to the other one. See, if you saw the actual face of the actor, it was considered a complete failure. A complete failure. So these actors would devise sneaky ways of hiding and turning so that the crowd could never see them turn their mask. Are we getting a picture of what Jesus had in mind when he called them hypocrites? You're two-faced. You're a counterfeit. You're an impersonator. You are not who you say you are. You are all wearing masks and you're turning them around in secret. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In quoting Isaiah, Jesus is saying, you're just like the Israelites before they were led away in captivity. They did the same thing. They had a dead religion of works. There was no heartbeat. It was church on Sunday, fornicate on Monday. Talk about keeping the family legacy going. They killed the prophets. You're killing the prophets. Their hearts were far and your hearts are far. Well, what caused this? How did we get to this point? How did the Pharisees get to this point? What was the sin? And what is now the outworking of that sin? Well, the answer is at the crescendo of our mountain this morning. Here's our summit, verse 7. Verse 7. What is the sin? What does it all mean? But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. And there it is. Jesus is going to unmask these hypocrites by showing them the source of their authority. It's not God. It's man. They're taking man's commands, man's opinions, man's rituals, and telling an unsuspecting population who rely on you to teach them that these are the edicts of God. That these are to be revered even higher than God's law, as we discovered last week. This is not squabbling about hygiene with the washing of the hands, folks. Listen to this from Rabbi Taasa. He said, quote, Whoever has his place of living in the land of Israel and eats his food with washed hands may rest assured that he shall receive eternal life. End quote. Do we see the problem? They are the teachers and their condemnation is double. And this is what they're teaching. Clean hands, eternal life. You've made up your own religion and it has nothing to do with God's Word. You're my chosen people. And you've traded me off. You've traded my wisdom for yours. You've traded a heart relationship for dead religion and ritual. You've traded intimacy of worship for a counterfeit. You've traded the worship of heart, mind, soul, and strength. You've traded that for ceremony and for legalism and for yokes and for bondage. But in vain do they worship me. Right God? Wrong heart. Teaching as doctrines the commands of men. And as if it could get any worse than that, it is actually much more sinister. Let's keep digging. Verses 8 and 9, I'll read them as one. Leaving the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And he was also saying to them, you are good at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Now, as much as I love the LSB and the ESV translations, which most of us use, they seem to have missed the heartbeat of what Jesus is saying here. Because it accuses the Pharisees of leaving the commandment of God or letting go of the commandment of God or setting aside the commandment of God. But all these miss the thrust of the verb here, athetine. 
Aphetine. This is an active, thrustful verb meaning to reject. The Pharisees did not just give favoritism to the traditions. They didn't merely give preference to their rituals. This verb means that they actively rejected God's commands in favor of their own. We need to see the heart matter that Jesus is putting his finger on here with these people. This is not subtle. This is not a quiet preferring of of one way over the other. It is not a passive resistance. They are actively choosing their own man-made rules over God's commands. And we've read numerous verbatim quotes from the Jerusalem Talmud. Do you remember these? Just a quick reminder for those who were here last week from the Jerusalem Talmud. The words of the scribes, oh, we read these, are more lovely than the words of the law. This is what they're preaching. Athetine. Athetine. This is active rebellion. Active resistance. Active rejection against God's law. And thus your worship is in vain. It has no bearing on eternity. Pastor and theologian H.A. Ironside. I've always wondered what kind of pastor you must be with the last name Ironside. He writes, quote, To the spiritual mind, it is a question of unceasing wonder that men should be so ready to follow and even fearlessly contend for the authority of human traditions while they are just as ready to ignore the plain teachings of the Word of God. End quote. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, on these two commandments rest the whole law and the prophets. Yes, that and properly washed hands will get you eternal life, apparently. Saints, we had better have chapter and verse for what we do. In our life, in our church, let us handcuff ourselves to the text. Bite down like a pit bull. Lock your jaw ferociously on Scripture and don't let go. How many will stand before the great white throne saying, Lord, Lord, we did so many wonderful things in Your name. Our works were piled high to the ceiling. And you will say, depart from Me. I never knew You. But Jesus doesn't leave the Pharisees to speculate. He doesn't leave them begging for an example of their depraved religion. He shines a light on just one profane example to close this encounter. Verse 10. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Jesus does nothing less than to bring these legalists back to Exodus 20 and 21. This is no less than the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses. He's going for the gold here. You want to talk about the law? I'll give you the law. How about some thunder from Mount Sinai? How about the fifth commandment? Jesus is setting a snake trap for this brood of vipers. And at this point, the Pharisees are probably nodding their head in agreement. Yep, yep. Honor your parents. Yep, law says we'll stone you if you don't. We'll stone you if you don't obey obey and honor your parents. Yep, that's correct. By the way, just a quick side note on this as we approach it. I want to pass it over. You'll have many scoffers, unbelievers who use passages like this, like stoning someone for dishonoring their parents as proof that we should reject this old dusty book as unreasonable and out of step with modern society. Well, you can reject their rejection with all surety and confidence. Don't shy away from these verses. 
Number one, the speaking of evil against the parent here is given in the present tense, the verb, which means they didn't just make a mistake. They didn't make a slur one time or have a bad day and say something mean to their parents. This means that they are habitually, present tense, and continually maligning and slandering their parents in public without repentance. And God says, no, you're to be different. You're to be set apart as my people Israel. So I'm going to make the consequence so high that you'll never cross them. And you know what? It worked. We have no evidence in Scripture that anyone was ever put to death for this infraction. I can see a lot of parents' heads kind of turning here going, hmm. Time to bring back some Old Testament justice. Kids these days. I kid. I kid. Or do I? All right. What's Jesus driving at here? What's he driving at here? Verse 11 through 13. Jesus springs the trap. What's the first word in verse 11? But. But. Jesus just spoke scripture. Jesus just quoted the law. If anything from Scripture comes out of your mouth and the next thing out that you hear out of yours or anybody else's mouth is but, what they're about to say is wrong. Don't even have to hear it. It's wrong. It's so liberating to be so refreshingly narrow-minded. There is no but. Like my mom said, don't you but me. God said it. That settles it. There's no buts. Yet here we are. But you say... If a man says to his father or his mother, whatever you might benefit from me is Corban. That is to say, given to God. All right, what are we talking about here? Well, the law tells you that you must honor your father and mother. The law tells you that you must take care of your father and mother. When they're old, they cannot take care of themselves. You have to take care of your parents. That's the Judaic law. Seems pretty simple. One we would do well to embrace today. But what was Israel up to? What were they actually doing? What is this Corban that they're speaking of? Well, this word Corban is a, it's a Jewish term that really means just devoted to God. It was a label that was applied to anything materially or monetarily that a person had pledged or dedicated to God. And one commentator, he gives us a helpful overview of this, quote, at some point in Israel's history, a tradition arose allowing people to declare their possessions Corban thereby promising that they would eventually use their resources for sacred purposes. Even if a man's parents asked him for financial support, he was forbidden from using anything he had declared to be devoted to God in order to help them. The rabbinic system thus provided adult children with a loophole by which they did not have to assist their aged or needy parents and yet could still appear to be loyal worshipers who gave generously to God. So though a person could declare all of his possession Corban, he was not required to donate them immediately to the temple or the synagogue. For the most part, the pledged possessions remained under their control. And in fact, whenever he wanted to use them for his own purposes, he could reverse the vow just by saying the word Corban over them, and it was done. The hypocritical system promoted by the Pharisees and scribes allowed people to maintain an exterior veneer of dedication to God while Simeus simultaneously turning their backs on their parents. Close quote. Wow, Mom and Dad, you sure look hungry. And that roof is leaking something fierce. I would love to help, but all my money is Corbin. I've dedicated it all to God, and you can't ask me to take something away from God now, could you? My hands are tied. This is exactly the opposite of the law. 
And they are promoting this. Verse 12, and you no longer leave him to do anything for his father or his mother. You can declare over all your all your possessions, over all your money, Corbin. And now you can look super spiritual to everyone. Look how much I've given to God and not have to give a thing. What a deal. It's like the guy putting an empty envelope in the offering plate as it goes by, right? Put on a show. Well, you'll notice we don't pass a plate here at Harrison Hills. There's a box in the back because giving is between you and God. No show required. And ironically, even with that, there are those who think they want to impress the pastor by their giving. And sorry, that won't work either. I've never seen the giving rolls of this church, nor will I ever look at them. The only motivation for giving is worship between you and God. Israel had lost that worship. They traded it in for a farce. And this was just one example. One example, verse 13. Thus invalidating the Word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down and you do many things such as that. Jesus wraps it up with a stinging rebuke. You've not preferred your tradition over the law. You have replaced the law with your tradition. And your worship, your religion, your robes, your tassels, your phylacteries on your head, it's all worthless. This is not what I gave Moses. This is not what came down in thunder and smoke from Sinai. This is apostate. Saints, here's the tragedy. Had they followed the law of the Old Testament, they would have seen their sin. Ultimately, Paul tells us that's the purpose of the law, isn't it? To show us our sin. And they would have seen Messiah standing right in front of them. Legalism will blind you to the beauty of Jesus. Jesus' beauty radiates through when we consider all that He has done for us. When we saw ourselves in our helpless estate that we could do nothing to earn forgiveness and that Jesus paid it 100%. To wash those hands, to wash those copper pots is to rob Jesus of the glory that's due Him. It's to call the cross inadequate. I'll close with the great J.C. Ryle. Quote, let us beware of attempting to add anything to the Word of God as necessary to salvation. It provokes God to give us over to judicial blindness. It is as good as saying that His Bible is not perfect and that we know better than He does what is necessary for man's salvation. It is just as easy to destroy the authority of God's Word by addition as it is by subtraction by burying it under man's inventions as by denying its truth. The whole Bible and nothing but the Bible must be our rule of faith. Nothing added and nothing taken away. Close quote. Let us not worship in vain with the right God, but the wrong heart. Because the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And it does no good to cleanse the hands with water if the heart has not been cleansed by the blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are difficult passages for us. Lord, as we have once again looked into the mirror of Your law, Lord, we've seen what happens with the perversion of Your law. We've seen what happens when we do not allow the law to do its perfect work in our heart to transform us 
to see who we actually are in light of that law and to turn to you in repentance and faith. Lord, if there's anyone in here who has not done that, turn to you in repentance and faith. We ask that today you would move upon their heart. Lord, we ask that you watch over us this week. We ask that you bring us back safely again where we can worship in your word and with the brothers. In Jesus' name, amen.